everybody. It's that time of year again. If you're looking for some new gear or you've been listening to the show for some time and would like to give back, I've launched a brand new spring apparel store for the MyFit podcast. Our new brand colors for this year are mint green and black, and the store has t-shirts, men's tanks, women's tanks, and crop tops in a plethora of sizes with that color scheme. As most of you know, podcasting has become a burning passion of mine over the past three years, and I've had an absolute blast producing insightful conversations with some of the highest achievers in the world on a weekly basis, and I'm so excited for what the future looks like for the MyFit podcast. If you'd like to give back to the show, hit the link in my bio on Instagram and purchase a shirt in my online store. The store will close at the end of April, so make sure to get on there soon. Thank you all for your continued support for the past three years. I am forever grateful. Enjoy this week's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hilliard. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 164 of the MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, I chat with Peter Brown and Mark McDaniel on the science of learning and what types of strategies we can put into place for better retention and long-term development. Peter Brown is a writer of several books and a former management consultant. Mark McDaniel is a professor of psychology and director of the Center of Integrative Research on Cognitive Learning and Education at Washington University in St. Louis. In 2014, both Peter, Mark, and Henry came together to write the best-selling book, Make It Stick which draws on recent discoveries in cognitive psychology and other disciplines to create concrete techniques for becoming better learners. Ironically, many common study habits and practice routines turn out to be counterproductive to students, teachers, trainers, and athletes. This conversation today appeals to all those that are interested in the challenge of a lifelong learning and self-improvement. Some of the topics we got into first, when I have authors on the show, I like to first start with the title of the book, which is Make It Stick. I wanted to know, number one, why is that the title and what does it mean to truly make something stick? After that, we talked about understanding how our memory works. What are some of the key terms or processes we need to know as listeners? After that, we talked about active retrieval, which is one of the biggest strategies that both Peter and Mark talk about when it comes to strengthening your memory, it's active retrieval. And we talked about fluency versus mastery, what those two concepts mean and how they show up in our daily lives. And we talked about mixing up your practice with three different strategies called interleaving, spacing, and variance. Then we talked about one of my favorite parts, of course, is the importance of mindset in learning new material. As most of you know, if anything has to do with mindset, I'm all over it. I really enjoyed uh, hearing about that part. After that, we talked about how to get more out of your reading. I don't know about you, but I've had several occasions where I've read a chapter or even a full book and closed it, and I enjoyed my time reading it, but I have a hard time understanding exactly what I read, and I sure as heck couldn't tell the person next to me what I read. So I wanted to know, how can we get more out of our reading? 
And then we close down by giving applicable advice to teachers out there who can help to create a more optimal learning experience for their students so they don't have to cram for tests and they can actually learn the material, teach it to others, and bring it into their following years in academia. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, please uh, leave a rating review and refer it to a friend. Your feedback helps the show grow tremendously and also helps to bring on more amazing guests like Peter and Mark. And also, if you're looking for more ways to give back, make sure to head over to my Instagram bio and purchase a t-shirt or tank in the spring apparel order. Uh, That store will close at the end of April. So make sure to go do that now. Thank you guys for your continued support. I really uh, am very thankful for you guys tuning in. And I think you're going to love this very insightful episode with Peter Brown and Mark McDaniel. Let's go. Peter Brown, Mark McDaniel, welcome to the MyFit Podcast. I'm stoked for this conversation today. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having us, DJ. It's going to be fun. This is my first time that I've had two guests on the podcast before, so this will be something new for me, but I think uh, two more people means double the, the wisdom and even more uh, value for our listeners. Uh, what I want to do today, guys, is start with, obviously, your book. You guys came together and wrote a fantastic book called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. And before we get into all the nuances of it, I first want to hear and set the table a little bit of... Tell me a little bit about what does make it stick mean? And then also, how did you guys come together to write this book? Well, uh, there are three authors of the book, uh, Mark McDaniel, uh, Henry Rodiger, he goes by Roddy and me. Uh, Mark and Roddy Rodiger are cognitive psychologists at Washington University in St. Louis with a deep background in the field of learning and memory. Rodiger happens to be my brother-in-law, and uh, they were part of a team of uh, about 11 cognitive psychologists funded for a decade by a foundation to do research into the question of what leads to learning. And uh, I was hanging out at a family thing with, with Roddy. He was telling me they're coming toward the end of that decade of research, and what they're learning is counterintuitive, uh, what they're learning about how learning works. And they're trying to figure out how to get it out to a general audience. And that was the, the seed that was planted for our collaboration. I'm not a scientist, I'm a writer. And we thought if we could pull together the science and make it engaging to read uh, and make it understandable to someone like myself who's not a scientist, that we might have something. And that's how we got uh, into this project. And it's been, it's been a life-changing experience for me, that's for sure. And uh, really a great experience to do something like this with collaborators who are so smart and so uh, easy to get along with. Very cool. And Mark, I, I'm curious, when you guys were coming together to do some of the research, was this some was this a subject that was uh, new? Was there not a lot of research out there on the science of learning? Did you guys feel like you were kind of pioneering some of this stuff? Or if not, where did you find most of your research to write this book? Well, uh, I think some of the underlying principles and foundations have, were there from laboratory research. And what we were doing was to try to lean on those principles that have been uh, derived from laboratory experiments with pretty impoverished materials, wordless, basically, or parasociables, and try to see if they would generalize to more naturalistic content, more educational content, not only in laboratory experiments, but also in classrooms. Uh, 
So I think one of the exciting things was that we found that, yes, many of the principles from the memory laboratory that, as Peter said, are somewhat counterintuitive and had not made their way into the general public were applicable to classroom learning. And that was very exciting to us, but also a little bit, we were also distraught, this team of researchers, because we could see that many of these things were not being embraced by teachers and by students. And if I could, DJ, I'd just like to tell you a poignant story that I think uh, um, puts a, uh, really uh, illustrates what we were feeling at the time. And it's still occurring now. Well, uh, as authors of the book, we often get emails from students and teachers telling them, telling us about their stories. And we just got one yesterday from a student at uh, at a, a, a really high-ranked university who said, I was, "I was struggling in my courses, but thanks to your book and accessing the science of learning, I really started to thrive as a student." And now I'm in a post-baccalaureate uh, medical education program, and I'm just doing great. Uh, and he says, but what's so, uh, what's so disheartening to me is that I look around at many of my fellow classmates who are brighter than I am are struggling with the content. And he, he was saying, I just, are there ways we could get resources to these students to let them know that there are better ways to learn, learning that makes it stick. And by that, we mean learning strategies that help you retain information over the long haul, like you will need in a medical school or a law school, or even in, 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 in any grade that you're learning, you want that information to stick so you can use it later, integrate it to new learning. And uh, most strategies that students use don't make information stick. It's there for a short while and then they can't recover it. So at any rate, that's the reason for the book is to try to get these very helpful and effective learning strategies and teaching strategies into the general public's awareness so that they can profit from it. So students can be better learners, teachers can be better teachers. And that, that we've done some of that, but much more needs to be done. Very well said. Can we set the table a little bit for how does our memory work? I think what I what I'd like to hear more about first before we dive into the strategies, guys, is how do we go? How does we go from hearing something into our brain and, and going from short term to long term? What what does that process look like? Just so we can set the table before we get into the strategies. Can I help frame that, uh, Mark? I'd like you to answer that question, but I think when Mark talks about teaching and learning, he's talking about athletics, sports. He's talking about training in the military. He's talking about anything where we're trying to become a masters of knowledge and skill. Uh, it's not like knowledge is this thing and skill is that thing. The brain has to knit these things together. And I think that helps uh, broaden our sense of Mark's response to your question about how people learn. Well, it's a great question. It's one that uh, memory psychologists have been studying for a long, long time. Uh, I think the best way to start is to talk about integrating new information into prior knowledge. So a lot of getting things into long-term memory means forming connections with what we already know. 
And a, a, a good example that, that we give often in our talks or in demonstrations is you can give uh, sentences that seem somewhat arbitrary, such as the, uh, the hungry man got into the car, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, what are some of the other examples, Peter? They're hard to remember if you're just trying to remember. <laughs> the short man thanked the checkout clerk. <laughs> That's right. The short man checked the. So, um, at any rate, you can try to memorize these sentences. A lot of people think that's what it takes to get things in the long term memory. Or you can relate these sentences to what you already know about the world, why people do certain things. So, the hungry man got into the car rather than just memorize it. Try to think of an explanation for it. Why would the hungry man get to the car? Well, when you think about it that way, you say, well, he's going to a restaurant to eat dinner. Short man thanked the checkout girl. Why would the short man thank the checkout girl? Well, he was trying to maybe reach up and get uh, uh, something high off the shelf, and he couldn't do it. The checkout girl was able to get that for him. So once you start relating what seems to be new arbitrary information to prior knowledge, you're forming good interconnections, good, I guess I'll, we can call them mental models, a deep understanding of why events are taking place. And when we run this demonstration and we have students and teachers and administrators try to come up with an explanation for each of these arbitrary sentences, they'll remember the whole list easily. When we ask them to try to memorize it, it's a big struggle. So that's one big key, DJ, is memory follows from understanding. So if you can grapple with understanding, push to try to understand things more deeply, connect it with what you already know, that's what really gets things intertwined and stored in long-term memory. Now, there's another aspect that's a little more counterintuitive, and that is that practicing recall, practicing retrieving things from long-term memory can actually make those memory traces, if you will, more robust stronger, more consolidated. And also it helps you, it helps you, if you will, kind of grease the retrieval roots to that information. So that's another thing that I want to say is that learning is not just about getting things into the head. Learning is also about how to retrieve information nimbly and flexibly when you need it. And the way to do that is to practice retrieving information. And that's one of the big counterintuitive points of the book is that you should try to recall to learn. Recall is not just for testing. Recall is to help learn. And, and I think in athletics, that that's, that's pretty clear in athletics. When you're practicing things, you're, you're kind of trying to recall the previous muscle movements and the previous tactics and strategies and so on that you learned. In academic learning, where you're, you're, a lot of the recall is verbal, it's not so obvious that we ought to be practicing recall. I think in sports, that's a pretty obvious thing. Although in athletics, there are other things that Peter and I will talk about that are much less obvious that can lead to much better learning and, uh, and performance of, uh, of skills, athletic skills. Yeah, I would like to dive into the, the active retrieval as a big part of the book. And, and the more I hear you guys talk about it now, the more I think about when I'm recording podcasts, 
I'm having conversations with people and I'm relating them to other conversations that I've had with other podcast episodes. And the more I can do connect those two topics, the more deep work and creativity and passion comes from me because it's, it's really coming together. It's that light bulb moment of, ah, it makes sense because I'm connecting it with a past experience. Pretty powerful stuff. Right. It is. And one of the things that I found very interesting about the research was that when you're um, practicing something new, uh, it, you, there are certain things that make it more difficult that make it a much stronger learning, even though it feels difficult. You think maybe I'm not getting it. Uh, it the difficulty becomes an asset in helping your brain differentiate uh, uh, different kinds of problems and find similarities. For example, it, whether it's uh, practicing your 20-foot putt or uh, finding the volumes of different kinds of geometric solids, uh, once you don't want to just keep doing the same thing over and over again to like burn it into memory. You want to do it, mix it up and practice different geometric solids for, for volume different formulas so that when the problems come at you at random, you're not only, you get better at identifying which kind of problem is it? How do I do my putt mm -hmm. from 20? How do I do it where there's a different lay? Uh, by mixing up the practice, uh, although it's you're more error prone, you become much more adept at identifying the problem and landing on the right solution and applying it. But often that kind of difficulty is interpreted, misinterpreted as I'm not getting it. I was going to say, I, I don't think there, I don't know if there's any science to say what I'm about to say to back this up, but I feel like there's a lot of strength of memory when stories are involved. People gravitate towards listening to stories and they, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, guys, but when I hear a story, I learn better. And you guys do a great job in your book of telling stories. And what, one of those stories was the cranberry effect. And this hat was in that active retrieval part. Yeah. Could you tell that story? And then also is, have you guys found any science of storytelling and the ability to strengthen your memory with storytelling? Oh, well, let me, the, the cranberry thing is just a very simple thing that, you know, if you have a kid at uh, Christmas uh, and she's uh stringing cranberries on a thread and she's going to hang it up on the tree and so she strings a bunch of them she goes to hang it up on the tree but they're start falling off the other end of this of the string because there's no knot and uh it's just like a necklace you have to have a knot in, you know after every bead and uh retrieval practice memory is the same way you can learn a lot of stuff but if you don't practice retrieving it you haven't tied the knot to secure it in memory so uh, this notion that Mark talked about of getting it out is uh, what you have to do after you've worked at getting it, you have to practice getting it out and mixing that practice up uh, with similar uh, problem types. It makes you better at each different kind of problem type. So the, the metaphor there is the knot that uh, secures the memory. Forgetting is the human condition. We've known this for a long time. So the challenge is how do you, uh, tie those knots so that it's there when you want it later. And DJ, in terms of how storytelling helps memory, you're absolutely right about that. And cognitive psychologists have known for a long time that narratives and stories are remembered much better than uh, text that's not 
uh, intertwined together through stories and through uh, uh, some events causing other events and relations among those items. So absolutely, stories are very memorable. And there, there are some people now explicitly saying, we ought to try to turn our school learning into, uh, instructors ought to try to make a story out of, out of each unit, out of each lecture. There's a book called Why, uh, Why Students Don't Like School by Dan Willingham. And that's, that's what he recommends to teachers in that, in that book is he said, take each lesson and turn it into a story. And that becomes memorable because that's how humans learn and remember through story. We've had a long history even before writing of, of uh, auditory storytelling that gets passed down through generations. And that's possible because as humans, we remember these interconnected events that are stories and have a beginning and an end. And even if I can get technical, uh, a certain grammar to them. And we, 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 uh, we learn this grammar, we absorb this grammar, and it becomes a structure by which then we help scaffold and remember stories. So you're absolutely right. To the extent that uh, we, can, we can present information to stories, it's going to be much better remembered and more entertaining. Stories have an entertainment value that also can lead to better memory. And that's why Peter Brown came on board to tell the story that as academics, Roddy Rodiger and I write a lot. We write a heck of a lot, but it's in a style that's for an academic audience and it never would have been well received by a general public. And so Peter put these into stories and I think that's why it's so successful. So you hit it right on the head there. One of the things about stories is it's what is it? Why did it happen? What happened next kind of thing? What if one of my favorite stories, one of the principles that I learned in reading the research and talking with Mark and Roddy is you want to, it's true in sports. You want to practice like you want to play, right? Uh, and this was, uh, I was interviewing some cops and this is a story about how cops are trained to take a gun from somebody who's holding a gun in front of them. And it involves, uh, using one hand to hit the wrist of the person who's got the gun and the other hand to pull the gun away. And they practice that over and over. Uh, so at training, they'll do this. They'll take the gun, they hand it back, they'll do it again, hand it back, do it again. Until one day, one of the cops was out in the field and, and uh, he had a real life situation. He hit the hand, hit the wrist, grabbed the gun, gave it back. Well, <laughs> that didn't work too well. He had to do it again and keep it this time. So this notion of, when you hear that story, you get this aha moment. Of course, you want to practice the way you're going to play because that's how you're going to play is how you practice. Uh, the, the, the not metaphor for me works because I right away I understand the cranberries, but then you think about a beaded purse or you think about a magnificent tapestry in some medieval castle that's showing a story of the horses and the kings and all these people and that whole entire story relies on individual knots, just as our learning about complex topics uh, involves a secure knowledge of the elements of that. And then they blend into a story. We know the why and the what and what happened. And, and it comes to us. Soon we see parallels and other things we're encountering. Well, that's like this. I wonder if the solution for this would be useful here. Not, not quite, but I could adjust it. So that's I, it's how I think about learning is through that kind of larger knitting together of individual pieces. 
that you guys said in the book that the effort of retrieving knowledge strengthens its staying power. I'm curious if we had an example about, let's say somebody that's, you know, in middle school or high school, what does, what does active retrieval look like? And then maybe Mark from a sports standpoint, what, what is an example of active retrieval? Have you guys both share about an example, how somebody can kind of take this with them? What does that look like in their lives? Well, let me just make one quick thing. I was talking to some uh, middle school students uh, school and uh, I had gone online and gotten da- I downloaded from Nova, the TV show on science, a little clip of the Nobel laureate Eric Kendall, who was studying uh, memory learning uh, using the uh, neurons of sea slugs because they're large and you can look at them under a microscope. And it turns out if you stimulate a sea slug siphon with a little probe, it, it comes down and then after a while it opens again. But if you put a small current in that probe, it goes down and it stays down longer. So he shows under the microscope how that memory is formed he shows the neuron reaching out an axon to another neuron that the formation of a memory a long-term memory is a physical act Mm. if it feels hard well you are actually changing your brain by building these connections and when you practice that and it's a little difficult it strengthens those connections the students later, I, a couple of years later, I was out there and asking, what do they carry along? And <laughs> apparently there's going to be a quiz today and they kind of wake, it's retrieval practice. <laughs> and they understand it and they have a different interpretation of difficulty as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Maybe I've wandered a little from your question, but uh, that understanding of difficulty and the physicality of memory, at least it helps me understand. Uh, that I'm building something here. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mark, you want to talk about so, that in sports? Well, yeah, I can. And it gets us into another topic too, uh, related to what you just said, which is practice the way you're going to play. So uh, oftentimes in sports, uh, people will practice the same particular stroke or golf club over and over and over again until it feels fluent and smooth and they feel like they've got it right. But it's, that's not really active retrieval because you've already, if you will, loaded that routine into your motor cortex. So you're swinging the nine iron. You see it all the time at the practice range. And someone hits nine iron after nine iron after nine iron. Well, They're learning how to hit a nine iron when they've hit it 40 times before, but that's not the way you play. When you got to the golf, are you a golfer, DJ? I can be. (laughs) (laughs) So when you go out, when you go out, you pull out your nine iron when you're, what, 100 yards to the green and you hit it after you've already hit a couple of woods, maybe, and a long iron. So active retrieval in sports would be hitting that, hitting that club after you've hit other clubs, because now you've got to actively retrieve the nine irons shorter than the other club. I've got to change my stance. I've got to maybe, instead of swinging off, uh, uh, positioning myself so the ball's off my front foot, as you might for a longer iron, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it so the ball's more in the middle, or maybe, I don't even know, you're hitting a kind of an iron iron a certain way, maybe even off the back foot. All those things you got to actively retrieve. If you've practiced, in a masked way over and over again, 
you're not retrieving any of those things. So you're not learning the kinds of things you need to retrieve when you're in the actual game. Tennis is the same way. You see, you see people in a backhand after backhand, and they say, oh, that's good. I really got my backhand. They get to the game, their next match, and where's their backhand? Well, it's no surprise. It's maybe not as good as they want it to be because they haven't had to hit the serve, then hit the backhand, or hit a volley, then hit the backhand. So again, they haven't in practice actively retrieved all the little fine muscle movements you need to make to maybe switch your grip from the serving grip to the backhand grip and and change your positioning and on and on and on. So that's what active retrieval is in sports is, is it really is practicing the way you're going to play because the way you're going to play means retrieving all these different motions and stances and positionings on the fly as you're moving through the game, moving through the golf course. And, and, and as Peter said, that kind of practice feels difficult. And that kind of practice feels like you're not making any progress. Well, this, the swing's not getting quite as fluid because you haven't done it four times in a row, but the swing is getting more solid in terms of it's, it's, it's the, the retrieval components that allow you to make the swing successfully are slowly getting built up. And it's not quick because Peter says there's physical changes in the brain that have to happen. Those don't happen right away. So you need to intermix the practice to give yourself a chance every time you're doing it to do a little bit of active retrieval, build those connections so that at some point you'll get out in the game or the golf course and you'll be able to retrieve that thing and execute it very nicely. You might surprise yourself when that happens. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly right. So so it's all interrelated. The way you practice, it's got to be the way you play. And why is that? Because then uh, it, 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 you're, you're mimicking, you're practicing the retrieval aspects that you're going to always have to do when you're playing as you move to different shots and different strokes and different positions and so on and so forth. I had a really interesting opportunity when I was working on this project to sit down with uh, Georgia Bulldogs uh, uh, former coach, Vince Dooley, with a fabulous win-loss record. Uh, and I just asked him, how do you get the team from one Saturday game to the next Saturday game? It was really interesting because, you know, they look at the opposition, they, they talk about in the different positions uh, what their moves are going to be. They practice them in position. They run them slow. They run them faster than they come together. They practice it on the field. Uh, it's a very interesting mix of, uh, of practice at speed and individually and, and collectively. In the meantime, there's the standard playbook. And I said, well, how do you keep that fresh? He said, well, all the players, they can't always be running on the field. I have them working at home. They go through these plays in their mind. They might move their body a little bit, uh, and they just keep them fresh that way. There's certain other plays they make sure they practice, you know, every week at a different time to keep them fresh. It's really a brilliant combination of mixed practice that informs the mind and the, and the muscle uh, to prepare for that Saturday game. What, what, what does active retrieval look like for a student, somebody who is studying for something? How can we, how can we talk to those guys? Well, active retrieval is anything they can do to try to pull information out of memory. Most students prefer to read something over and over 
because it's easier and they're under the illusion that reading over and over is producing good memory. And why are they under that illusion, DJ? There's two basic things. One is because as you reread, your reading gets more fluent. And we know this from years of cognitive science, more fluent at every level, recognizing the word, putting the words together to form ideas, processing the syntactic structure of the sentence. All of that gets more fluent. And that fluency is a signal that the brain interprets as, I'm getting this, I'm learning this, except that it's a, a signal that's misleading. And the other signal is familiarity. So as you reread, you say, oh, yeah, I know this. Oh, I got this. I got this. And it becomes more and more familiar. And familiarity is a signal the brain interprets as, I'm getting this. I'm learning this. And that's also a misleading signal. So instead of reading over and over, you simply put the text or the audio recording of the lecture away, and you try to recall it. And there are a lot of ways you can do this. I mean, one is you can develop flashcards for information and use those flashcards appropriately. Many students will look at the question, turn it over, look at the answer and say, okay, yeah, I know that. No, when you see the question, you got to try to retrieve it on your own. Then you give yourself feedback. You can, uh, I mean, rereading is okay. You need to review material. But what you might do before rereading is you might take a certain uh, heading, a section heading, and try to recall as much as you can about the material, and then read it to give yourself feedback for what you were able to retrieve and what you weren't able to retrieve. And then what you weren't able to retrieve gives you uh, direction for how to further study. Um, you can try to teach somebody. That involves recall. So, DJ, what you should do for your retrieval practice is two hours from now, Tell your friend over lunch about what we talked about on the show today. That would be retrieval practice instead of listening to the tape again. Um, I have students who will call their parents and say, let me tell you about the lecture McDaniel gave. Let me tell you what we learned in class today. And they love doing that. The parents love hearing it. Anything. It doesn't matter whether it's writing it down, talking to somebody, doing flashcards, anything that demands that you pull it out of memory on your own is retrieval practice. And problem, so here's another thing, DJ. So a lot of students <clears throat> I, 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 that uh, I've come across in STEM, the STEM fields where there's a lot of problem solving, physics and chemistry and math, what they'll do is they'll study by looking at a problem and its solution and saying, they'll think to themselves, okay, I've got that step, I've got that step, I've got that step. Retrieval practice would be putting all your notes away and trying to solve that problem without any notes. That's retrieval practice, and that's where they're really going to learn how to bring that information to mind and solidify it when they're encountered with these different, when they encounter these different problems. So I can think of an example. Uh, I was interviewing a, a, a biology professor at the University of Washington in Seattle who would follow the science of learning. And uh, so she has, Maybe it's an anatomy course. Uh, every Friday, she has her students each take a flip chart size piece of paper. And I want you to put on that paper uh, all the different parts of the anatomy that we've talked about this week, uh, how they connect to each other. You can look at someone else's work, but I want you to do your own sheet. Uh, and that notion is I'm 
not only recalling what the material was, but I'm trying to better understand how it relates to, you know, all the pieces relate. Uh, that's a, you know, and she showed me some of these charts, they're kind of wild, but it's a, an active process of bringing it back and connecting it and building a mental model of the anatomy. So we have active retrieval. We have fluency versus mastery real quick on the fluency versus mastery. Ultimately we, we all want to be masters of what we're trying to learn. Is there ever a time when you want to be fluent? You want to be more on the fluency side, or are we always aiming to be on the mastery side? I'm not sure I understand the difference. Uh, fluency, as Mark was describing, it is uh, you become fluent with a passage, but maybe don't can't explain why that passage is the way it is to somebody else. Uh, you become good at, at repeating back, but not at understanding the implications of it and how it applies to other things in this thing you're studying. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be my simple answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Putting it so, in your own words, for example. No, it, it involves, it's, it's transfer, really. You want to be fluent so you can take that knowledge. It's fluency in the sense that you can take that learning and you can apply it in new situations and unexpected situations. So the golfer who's hitting the wedge out of some rough territory has never hit that wedge, has never been in that exact spot before. The things are changing. So that, I mean, fluency in terms of an immediate fluency would be hitting the same ball out of the same, well, it's always the same ball, out of the same spot over and over again. You'd get fluent at that. But that doesn't mean that that's a skill that's going to transfer when you get different kinds of roughs, different kinds of areas. That's the kind of fluency we're pulling for here. Really? Is you can take this knowledge. It's so flex. Really, I like talking about flexibility of the knowledge rather than the brittleness of it. So if you practice the same thing over and over, read it over and over, you may have some knowledge that's very brittle, may not transfer. But if you're practicing in a mixed up sense of practicing retrieval, you now have knowledge that's more flexible and usable and transferable. And we could talk about some studies that show exactly that. And that's so you do want to be fluent, DJ, but you want to be fluent in retrieving and executing the action in new situations, because every situation you're going to be in is, is pretty new. Even if you're shooting a free throw in different gyms, the depth is different in different gyms. you got people waving different things behind you. Noise levels are different. All these things matter. And so you want to be able to execute it in all these different contexts. I have an example on that. I was uh, writing a make it stick, uh, interviewing a brain surgeon of the Mayo Clinic. And uh, he was describing to me the situation which he was called into the operating room uh, to help a surgeon, a younger surgeon, who was removing a brain tumor. The typical way of removing this, this tumor, if it's in, uh, let's say it's in the muscle mass or something like that, you're very careful uh, to get a clean margin, take your time and get that thing out of there. But if it's in the brain, it's different. You cannot afford to have bleeding in the brain. You've got to work fast and then you've got to get it out and then you've got to, you know, cauterize the bleeding parts. And that surgeon didn't understand. He thought this problem and that problem were the same problem. It was the same kind of tumor, but different problem. So that's, a, you know, the fluency uh, and the ability to discern uh, when the problem is different, even if it looks the same, is a bigger understanding 
uh, uh, and um, different kind of uh, procedure to, to solve the problem. By the way, Peter, uh, we're going to be in an audio tape. So when you said this problem, that problem, you were gesturing to your muscle and your shoulder or your head for your brain. So we, that, that, yeah. so <laughs> just so everybody understands. <laughs> That's awesome. So we have we have active retrieval, fluency versus mastery. Mix up your practice. One of the pieces I really enjoyed out of mix up your practice was spacing and spreading out your learning reps versus mass learning in a cramming fashion. One of the quotes I wanted to pull out was practice, quote, practice that spaced out, interleaved with other learning and varied produces better mastery longer retention and more versatility. But these benefits come at a price. When practice is spaced, interleaved and varied, it re requires more effort. You feel the increased effort, but not the benefit of, that the effort produces. Learning feels slower from this kind of practice and you don't get the rapid improvement and affirmations you're accustomed to seeing from massed practice. Talked about this a little bit with the golfing scenario, but I'm curious if we could dive a little bit more into spacing and then maybe what that looks like in real life example, both from sports and academic. Mark? Sure. So, yeah, uh, DJ, I'll jump into the spacing and tell you what that looks like. Awesome. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about theoretically what the benefits are. And then, uh, then I'll explain some very, very uh, important practical benefits as well, learning benefits. So let's, let's take the scenario, and this is going to miss, mix academics and skill learning of uh, surgeons who are, they've got their MD, they want to be surgeons, and so they're in a, a surgery residency. And I don't know how much it's changed, but certainly 16 years ago in many training programs, the uh, lab would get set up, the surgeons would go in and they'd learn one particular surgery in a masked one day section. So let's talk about micro, microvascular surgery, where you're learning to repair uh, uh, tears in arteries. Um, so uh, it, in the usual standard uh, instruction, these surgical residents go in and at 8 a.m. for two hours, they see videotapes of the surgery. They practice it on synthetic models. They get feedback to their actual practice from the surgery instructor. And, and uh, then they take a break, two more hours of more advanced uh, uh, techniques and feedback on synthetic models, plastic arteries. They have lunch, two more hours, two more hours. So it's eight hours of training. They do it in one mass session. And at Rush Memorial, they, they were pretty pretty sensitive to some of the learning techniques that were being um, discovered in the lab. And they asked, well, I, I, I wonder what would happen if we just simply spaced this instruction. So they did it. They did an experiment where half the surgical residents did the usual eight hours of mass training uh, all in one day. And the other half were given a regimen where they got the first two hours of training one day. A week later, they came back and got the second two hours of training. A week later, third two uh, hours in the week there, the fourth two hours. So what you really have to note is the instruction is identical. Nothing has changed except the spacing of the instruction. Now, what spacing, spacing does a number of things, but one of the things it does, DJ, is it, it promotes kind of a retrieval practice. It promotes reminding so that 
A week later, you're doing something and you might remember, oh yeah, last week we did it this way, but now I've got to change it. And what that does is not only gives you retrieval practice, but it helps you now weave together or knit together things you did a week ago and things you're doing now in a way you don't get when you're doing mass training. And so it produces this deeper understanding, this flexibility of learning. A month after the last training session, both groups got their exam. And the exam was to take a synthetic artery and do the do different kinds of repairs. And they got graded on this. And the group that learned in a space manner, same identical instruction, just spaced out, showed better suturing, better use of margins, all that stuff. Their, their grades are better by the surgeon. But here's the kick. They were then asked to perform a, 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 a repair of an aorta that had been damaged and anesthetized rats. And they had never done this before, but this is what you have to do when you, when you get out of there. You got to perform the surgeries on live or uh, live uh, people, the surgeon preferred people, but that's not the way they did the exam, of course. And the space, none of the surgeons in the space group failed at repairing that aorta. They all able to do it. 16% of those in the mass group could not do that. They flubbed the surgery. And that's simply, that, that's, a, that's a very, very uh, impactful example of how spacing produces not just better retention, but better flexibility in the learning and better transfer in the learning. And I'll tell you, I mean, it woke me up to think about what surgeons do I want to see when I'm getting my knee replacement or so on? I want to go to the surgeons who have had this space practice throughout so that they would, so when they see a new knee, my knee, they can, they can adjust or do whatever they need to, to do the surgery properly. People with mass training are not going to be as effective as that. So, and it's the same, so you can imagine going toward the sports end of things with that example. And you can imagine having somebody do mass training. So the idea would be, we're going to have a long practice session today. We're going to practice four hours today, and then you're going to three days off. No, you ought to space that over four days, an hour this day, an hour this day, an hour, or whatever makes whatever unit of time makes sense. If you're a professional athlete, an hour is not going to do it. If you're an amateur, yeah, or a recreational, maybe go out for an hour. But the idea is you want to space that practice out because it's going to produce better learning. You're going to have this kind of retrieval of what you did the day before and a realization of, of uh, what, you know, how that relates to what you're doing now and, and, and better flexibility in a game situation. I'm learning to play pickleball, DJ, because my knee's shot. I can't play tennis anymore. And I'm, uh, at first I'd go out and I'd play a lot one day and then I'm, and, and I wasn't improving. And I thought, what, you know, why, why can't you understand? You should be spacing out your practice. So I put a little pickleball court in my basement and now I go down every night for 30, 45 minutes. And let me tell you, <laughs> I get in the game situation and I'm, I'm much more able to hit that little shot that I want to hit because I'm now applying the science of learning. It took me a year, DJ, but I finally figured it out. I could imagine that this is very, this is, this is, I, I could imagine this is very situational, but is there, is there such thing as too much space in between? Is it situational? Is there research on how much time? Talk to me about that. Well, that's a great, great question. We don't have a formula for it, but we've got a, 
we, we've got a rough heuristic, a rough rule of thumb. You don't want your spacing to be so short that everything immediately comes to mind. Then you're not really challenging retrieval that way. But you don't, on the other hand, you don't want space to be so long that you can't remember anything. So I don't want to wait two months before I go down to my basement and drill because I probably lost almost everything that I've gotten up to speed. Uh, so you want to, it's got to be a sweet spot where you, you, you struggle a little bit to retrieve some things, but you're still remembering enough that you can, you can get in and, and do the performance. And I, would, I, I don't, there's no formula. And people, uh, it, it may be that uh, uh, people find they're forgetting more or less rapidly. And uh, so it, it's going to depend on the individual just kind of exploring to see what that sweet spot is. I, I personally like every other day myself, but I don't have any science on that. You want to be rusty is the main thing. You want to be you a little rusty. Be, yeah. yeah. But I, you, I, you don't want to be rusty, but you don't want to be out in a coma. You want to be corroded, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about uh, learning a foreign language, uh, uh, you think about spending time in a classroom conjugating verbs and spending time out someplace trying to have a conversation, uh, you, you see a, you've got a sense of how you might space uh, your study of language is interesting. Uh, what uh, case I saw recently, where first of all you have to understand the human condition. The human condition is to forget. I mean that we're that's being human is forgetting. And so what you're trying to do is interrupt the forgetting. Mm. And uh, this was a situation uh, of learning foreign verb tenses. And uh, in one case, you know uh, there were uh, I think it was like. Uh, eight different sessions on the on the uh, on the verb uh, conjugation over maybe two weeks. Uh, maybe it was fewer six. I don't remember. But in any case, one group had a over a short period of time. The other group did exactly the same thing over a longer time, and then they charted the retention. And those who whose practice was spaced out uh, retained that far better than those who had the same amount of instruction in a short period of time. And that's one of the reasons why you have this personal experience if you're spending a month or six months in a foreign country and learning that language that you will find at some point you're starting to have conversations using idioms you didn't even know you knew because you've had this mix uh, and spaced opportunity to struggle with the language. So, yeah. So let me give you another example of how um, how you can increase spacing where you think you've already got some good spacing. So there was a study done in England where it's prescribed that these uh, students in early levels of primary school, first grade or so on, have to have at least 20 minutes of phonics training a day. And, and so phonics training is you, you see a letter and you have to know what it sounds like, or you see a syllable and you got to be able to to uh, produce the sound. And so researchers went in and said, well, maybe we could even increase the spacing. This is once a day. Maybe we could break up the 20 minutes and do many spacings within the day. So they took a group of, of students and these students spent 10 minutes uh, on, on part of the phonics training and learning. And then after a break, well, after some other uh, lessons, during the day, they spend another 10 minutes, and then later in the day, they spend another 10 minutes. So, well, so it's half an hour. They have spent half an hour. So at any rate, they gave these students a test two weeks later, 
And these students already knew some things about phonics. And the ones who had the daily space, that had spaced once a day for 30 minutes, didn't improve much at all after two weeks. The ones that got the little mini spacings, 10 minutes throughout the day, they showed improvement, significant improvement two weeks later. So, I, I, again, I don't know the formula for it, but depending on the content, it could be that you want to break things. And this has implications for the elementary schools. It could be instead of spending an hour on math and an hour on geography, an hour on spelling, you want to break those up into shorter space segments. So, I think. The more spacing you can do, even within a day, the better off learning is. One of my favorite parts of the book is a lot of favorites, but I really like talking about all things mindset. The show is called the MyFit Podcast because we talk about mindset and fitness. So when we got to, the, the, to talk about the mindset and whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. I really resonated with that and I lit up. <laughs> I would love to hear from you guys a little bit more in depth about where does the mindset play a role and how does the parlay into being able to have more long-term learning development? It's about interpreting difficulty. Uh, I think going back to the students at this the middle school I, I talked about, a mindset is helping you understand and accept the fact that learning new stuff is difficult. That you're actually you're actually building your brain. You're building the new connections, and that when some of the difficulties like mixing your practice and retrieving things, explaining, elaborating on them, that kind of thing is difficult. And how do we interpret that difficulty? Do we interpret that as I'm not getting it? It's too hard for me. Or do we interpret it as this good thing I'm doing this because it feels hard, must be important that I'm getting this, this done. So mindset really is about uh, interpreting difficulty uh, constructively and uh, accepting that learning and building capabilities, motor skills as well as cognitive skills, uh, takes work. And these particular tools that science shows us are effective uh, will feel difficult. Uh, those are what the scientists are calling desirable difficulties. Now, there are undesirable difficulties. If it's taught in a language you don't have, that's an undesirable difficulty. Uh, if you have some other kind of a disability uh, that keeps you from uh, learning something or engaging in a particular sport, that's undesirable. But the difficulties that are desirable are the ones that we've been talking about. Retrieval practice, mixed practice, space practice, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, can I add on to that? So in terms of mindset, the literature suggests there are uh, two endpoints to this. One's a fixed mindset where you believe that your abilities and skills are things you're kind of almost born with, or there's a limit to it. And the other end is a growth mindset where you believe that with sufficient effort and appropriate work, you can get better and better and better. And, and one of the damaging things about the uh, a, a, a fixed mindset is that it leads students and even teachers to believe that uh, that a particular individual is no good in chemistry, no good in math, or I'm just not, I, I, I'm not good in physics. And that's dangerous because what it does is it, it uh, well, it disincentivizes, not sure that's a word, students from 
they're trying to work on a, a, a material because they say, well, I'm no good at it anyway, so there's no need to work at it. And even, and I just was at a great talk last week from a researcher at Indiana University who said that even some instructors have this fixed mindset. Mm. And so they might say to a student, well, don't worry about that. Maybe you're not a math person. Sure. Yeah. And that, that's very damaging. Mm-hmm. So the other end of the spectrum is a growth mindset. We realize that with that the brain is plastic and malleable and with uh, sufficient effort and practice, you can grow new connections. You can get better. You can get more skilled. That mindset on its own, DJ, doesn't produce learning. But what it does is it sets the switches yes. for the individual to say, I can do this. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I don't have a limit but I know it's gonna take some practice and effort. So we did a study in chemistry at Washington University, DJ, where we randomly assigned some students to a growth mindset intervention where they're told about, they read articles, one article about how the brain's malleable and with sufficient effort and practice, you can form new connections and you can get better. And another group read an article on, here's how you should adjust to college, eat well, sleep well, and so on. That was a control group. And it, it, it the, end of the semester, we queried people in each group about how they had studied for their exams. And it was very interesting that the ones who were given their control, they, they didn't change their study too much, but the ones in the growth mindset said, well, I realized that I shouldn't just be looking at the easy homework problems. I should try to tackle the harder homework problems. The whole, so these, some of these problems were uh, given to students for practice. They didn't have to do them. And these and the people and the students of the growth mindset showed significant gains relative to the ones in the fixed mindset. Uh, and it was because not just they had a growth mindset, but they were now pursuing hard problems to solve. And they would say things like this: Oh, I didn't just look at the solution to see if I knew it. I tried to work through the solution and really and, and so that's the difference. The mindset sets the switches, gives the student motivation, as Peter said, to engage in the challenges and difficulties of learning. And that's why it's so important. I love it. We could talk probably a full hour or more of just about that because it's so vital. Okay. To, to give it some more color, one of the, the quotes that I pulled from the book I think is very fitting is, quote, many teachers believe that they can uh, make learning easier and faster, and then the learning <laughs> will be better. Much research turns this belief on its head. When learning is harder, it's stronger and lasts longer. It's widely believed by teachers, trainers, and coaches that the most effective way to master a new skill is to give it dog single-minded focus, practicing over and over until you've got it down. Our faith in this runs deep because most of us see fast gains during the learning phase of mass practice. What's apparent from the research is that gains achieved during mass practice are transitory and melt away quickly. Powerful. Mm-hmm. Should I give you an example of that? Please do. Okay. So this is an example in math learning. It could be extended to almost anything in which uh, students were taught to learn to compute the volumes of different solids. Peter alluded to this early on in, in our podcast. And so one group was taught that in a way uh, much math is taught where they were shown one solid and they were uh, told, here's how you compute the volume. And they were given practice problems on it over and over again, math play. This was for four different types of solids. One each in turn. It's like many math courses are taught. Uh, you, you learn how to compute in statistics, a T value, and then a correlation, and then F test. You learn each one in turn and you practice it over and over. The other group was intermixed. These things were intermixed. So they were shown the four volumes and 
told about how to compute the formula. And then they were given the same amount of practice that now the problems were all mixed together for the different solids. And here's exactly what you're saying, DJ. If you looked at practice performance, how well they solved the practice problem. The masked group, the ones who were practicing the same kind of problem over and over, were at about a 90% accuracy rate. The intermixed group was at about a 60% accuracy rate. The students knew that they weren't doing so well in the mixed group. The students in the mass group were saying, I got this. Boy, I really got this. I'm solving every one of these. It's so easy. And think about if you're an instructor and you're teaching in a masked way, you're saying to yourself, these students are really getting it. I'm doing a good job. Maybe I don't want a teaching award. This is just fabulous. But if you're mixing up, if you're forcing the student to intermix different problems into practicing those, the students are struggling. They're not performing so well. And you're, and you're as an instructor, you're saying, I don't know. I just don't think this is working. Well, that's immediate performance. A week later, these students then take a test on the same kinds of solids. The parameters change. The heights change. The, 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 the parameters of solid change, but they're the same four types of solids. Now what happens? The group that was solving at 90% has plummeted to 20%, DJ. Wow. 20% after a week. That's why massing is so illusory. Immediate performance is good (laughs) because you're just pulling things out of working memory. You're not retrieving from long-term memory. The interleave group, the mixing it up group, they were at 60% of practice. And on the exam a week later, they were at 60%. Now you might want them to do more than 60%, but they need more interleave practice. The point is they didn't lose a single thing over what they showed you in their initial performance. Everything they learned stuck. Now, what and what's partly that they learned is they learned how to identify certain features of the solid that 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 signaled them this is the formula I ought to use. So they were better able to see things in a, a week later in a in a context in, in, that wasn't masked. They were able to appreciate the signals that each volume was providing to tell them what formula that I use. The mass group couldn't do that. They couldn't, they knew the formula. They couldn't match up the formula with the solid. So what instructors are doing in any domain by massing is they're unwittingly preventing the student from learning the special features of each different instance that give rise to a different solution, give rise to a different approach. So it's as Peter was saying in the brain surgery, there are different signals in the brain, different contextual constraints that require you to go about the surgery a little bit different than if you're doing the surgery of the muscle. If all you've done is mass, mass, mass training, you may not recognize that. But if you've done interleave training, so you understand the range of variability and how that variability gives rise to different solutions, now, now you have mastered the situation. But it takes this challenging interleaving, mixing that instructors and students alike both think is not effective because all they're looking at is immediate performance. So that, that's the insidious nature of this mass training is it does give rise to really great immediate performance. Everybody thinks they're doing great teachers, parents, students, but over the long term and in transfer, they fall on their face and no one, no one realizes they don't understand. 
understand that consequence. Very well said, Mark. I love it. I have a couple more just quick hitter questions here as we're getting close on time. Something I've been curious on, I had a guy named Johan Hari on my podcast. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, but he wrote a book called Stolen Focus. And basically what he did was he interviewed 200 of the leading experts in the world around the idea of our our focus is being stolen from us for whether it's social media or all these other things, sleep and how we can do a better job at focusing on the task at hand. Obviously he goes into a lot of depth on it, but he talked about how people jump from task to task, tab to tab and thing to thing. And when that, when you do that, it actually takes the brain 23 minutes for you to get back to where you are. So for instance, if I were to open up an email, read it, and then come back to our conversation, it would take on average 23 minutes for me to come back to fully focus on this conversation. So I'm curious when we're talking about things like spacing things out, varying things up, where does that kind of run alongside multitasking and getting um, less work because we're doing too many things at once? Do you guys follow me? I do follow you, but, but a big difference is this in multitasking, you're interrupting what you're doing with a completely different task. In mixing, you're not interrupting what you're doing. These students finish solving a problem. And then they went to the next problem. Got it. The multitasking would be they'd start to work on the problem, then they check their cell phone, and then they just, yes, that's not good. You've, you you got to finish what you're doing and then move to the next one. The next one may be a little bit different, but it's not, you're not interrupting. You're completing one task before going to the next. So that that's the big difference. That's a big difference. It's, it's, yeah. Great point. Great point. And, yeah, go ahead. So, well, I was going to say, so let's, Let's just think about what you said. So it takes the brain 23 minutes to get back. Who, who knows where that estimate comes from? But at any rate, it, if you're <laughs> if you're solving a problem and you're finding some difficulty, you're still working on the problem. Your brain's not going elsewhere. You're working on the problem. So it's not that you're going to a completely different kind of thing and then having to readjust. So we're not talking about that kind of thing. We're talking about you're given a new problem and now you've got to start to think about how might I go about this? That's not a disruption. That's not an interruption. That's really a more, that's a more focused kind of uh, 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 attempt on the problem than say if you were massing, where massing really leads to kind of mindless repetition. Mm -hmm. So think about it. If you're solving the same problem over and over, you don't have to think about how you're going to solve it. You've already solved it. You just kind of repeat it mindlessly. So, you could be thinking about something else at the same you time. You could. You, you absolutely could. <laughs> it becomes automatic. So, so, there is so a, a, something I, that I just I, could. I, so I'm glad DJ raised this point. Is that if you're mixing and you move to the new problem, you're not disrupting focus. You're actually creating more focus because you've really got to focus on that to think about how you approach it. Sure. So I, I would say it's that this intermixing is actually not causing lots of disruptions. It's forcing more focus actually right and uh, let me just jump in though uh mark yeah, jump in. Uh, uh it since we wrote the book make it stick it came out mm -hmm. in 2014 this comp this conversation about interleaving and mixing has become uh, better refined and i think it's true. true that we understand that you want to mix problem types in, within the domain you're studying it's not like you're going to switch between and geography no. and mathematics sure, you're going to sure. correct so what you're trying That's to do correct. is understand the similarities and the differences of these problem types in that kind of mixing mm -hmm. versus uh, right. you know jumping all over uh, scattershot that's, right. that's right 
Yeah. I appreciate the clarification. Um, Peter, next question here. What, what, what's one of your tactics when we're going through this book? I'm thinking about somebody and it might, it might, it might be myself. I might be talking, this might be a selfish question, but how can people out there listening get more out of their reading? There's a lot of people who love to read, but sometimes they close the book and they're like, man, that was a good book, but I can't really tell you exactly what it was about. I enjoyed reading it. How can people specifically with books and with reading, how can we get more out of it? Which one of these tactics would you include? What would that look like? Well, I think, you know, one strategy is start with a question and read for the answer. So you could, you could go, if it's a textbook, go to the end of the book where they have questions on the chapter, read the questions and then start reading the book. So you know what you're looking for. Uh, but maybe it's just a, uh, it's an article you read in the paper uh, in the morning and you want to discuss it with someone over lunch. I don't know if you have this experience, but I've had it plenty of times. I, I want to mention it to someone at lunch. We go to lunch and I say, you should read this. What did you like about it? Well, let me see if I can remember what I like. You know, what are the main points? Right. So, read the article and think this is important. And then ask yourself, what were the things that impressed you about this that you want to be able to explain to somebody? Just do it, you know, and then go back and look. So uh, I think the, the point is, after you read something, can you say what the, what the meat of it was? And can you maybe explain even uh, why that's the case? This was a big issue for me writing Make It Stick was reading these research studies and trying to understand what was the question they were researching? What did they do? What did they find? And what did they think that explains their findings to try to begin to get uh, a narrative, a story, if you will? Uh, so I would say look for the story and be able to tell the story in your own words as a way to read something and carry it on from there. Well, Peter, you're really back. talking about yeah, retrieval practice. I mean, you're talking about retrieval practice. You're saying, think back and try to recover the main ideas. And I think that's exactly right. You're, you're, instead of just reading and moving on, you're stopping and retrieving and helping cement that in memory. And also you're checking your understanding, which is another good thing to do. A lot of times we'll read, then we'll move on, and then we'll try to think about what was in there and you'll think to yourself, well, I didn't really understand that, I guess. But do that right after you read it. Say, no, did I understand that? Could I explain that, as Peter mentioned? And if you can't, go back and reread it. Mm -hmm. And I, I was doing that with <laughs> I was reading the other day about this subatomic particle. It turns out it weighs more than it's supposed to. Did you see that article? No. And it, it, <laughs> it violates the standard theory of physics. Violates everything physicists think about how the universe that, that works. So I thought, wait a minute, my, I, did I get that? Did I understand that? So I went back and I so I had stopped. I paused. I asked if I understood it. I didn't wasn't sure I did. So I went back and reread it to to really get a sense of of what it was about. And so I can tell you a little bit about it now. I mean, I'm not going to, but it's it's that kind of thing where you just pause and check your understanding or try to retrieve. What, what I keep saying, one of my favorite parts, because there's a lot of favorite parts, but I, I really liked how you guys at the end of each chapter, you put, um, I forget how you put it, but it was basically takeaway like, points or something. Takeaway points. Yeah. It was fantastic. I wish every book had that. And for me, that was a retrieval. I was reading a retrieval mechanism of, okay, right. we're putting it all together. And it, it you know, 
I didn't have to do it myself. I just was able to read it. So I almost think for the books out there that don't have the takeaway points, one, they should, but if they don't, maybe you're creating your own takeaway points. And there's probably some validity and value guys to putting pen to paper. I would imagine even writing down what are the three things I took out from this chapter and, and putting pen to paper can really create my guess would be a lot of connection, neural connection. I think you're right. It's better if the author doesn't put the takeaway points. <laughs> if there's a you know, blank part, half a page, okay, right down here. What are the three things you learned from this chapter? <laughs> yeah, um, cool. My next question, uh, Mark, is I'm curious uh, in the academia sense. So we have my mom's a teacher, so I'm very mindful and compassionate for teachers. Um, and you're obviously a professor as well. I'm curious about I'm very curious about after after writing the book, doing all this research and being really in the trenches in academia, what advice would you give to professors and teachers? What are some things they can go do right now to help their kids have some more long-term learning development? Can we talk to them specifically? Well, one thing is that you can introduce more retrieval practice into your course. And we, we kind of have the feeling, I don't have any data on it, but the the authors of Make a Sick have the feeling that as you move up through the grades, there's less and less retrieval practice. In elementary school, you're doing a lot of practicing. And by middle school, you're into the system where there's an exam every three or four weeks, and there's very little retrieval practice. It's up to the student to figure out how to learn. And I think that's where some students get very disillusioned with school and have the mindset, I'm not a good student. By the time you're in college, it's maybe two really high stakes exams. And I would say the one really effective thing that can be done and it doesn't take very much modification to the courts very little modification is to introduce retrieval practice so i i started doing that in my own classes at the end of every class we have a little i have a little well you can call it a quiz i tell the students this is a learning opportunity because they don't like the word quiz my students told me quiz makes me feel anxious i said fine We'll just call this a learning. This is just a learning exercise. But it's basically, it's almost like you said, DJ, I'm asking them through questions to recover the three or four most important things we did in class that day. Um, you can, nowadays with the technology, you can put a lot of these quizzes online and you can open them up and say, You're, you have a couple of days to do the quiz and, uh, and then they can even get feedback online as well. We've done that in some courses we've done experiments in and shown that that online quizzing is increasing students' grades. Um, so online, you can do it in class. You could, you could send home practice questions to the students. Often they ask for those questions and encourage them to not just look at the question and find the answer, but try to retrieve the answer. So anything, you can start the class with a quiz. A lot of instructors are doing this now. They'll sign readings and then they'll start the class with a quiz so that students can retrieve what they had read and it becomes active for the class conversation and active so that students can interconnect the new things in class with, with their previous reading. And we've, we've had a number of instructors make those changes in class and find that the class is going better, the students are learning more. The students may, they may, uh, at first object, but if you tell them why you're doing it uh, and they see their performance improve, and Peter Brown and I talked to, and Ronnie Rodiger, an instructor in Mississippi teaching AP microeconomics, AP economics, 
And he did a lot of retrieval practice in class. Here's the way he did it. He'd ask a question and every student had a whiteboard and they had to answer the question on their own whiteboard. And then they'd share their answers. And, and he said, when the students saw how well they did at the practice AP exam, he said, the whole room was just full of excitement and, 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 and enthusiasm to see how much that retrieval practice had helped. So there are lots, lots of ways you can do that. That would be the one thing I think is easy to implement. It, it doesn't cost anything and students gain so much from it. Okay. I would like to add, I think that teachers need to teach how learning works. Students need to be taught what we right. know about how learning works and why we're doing this, what retrieval practice is, as opposed to a high stakes quiz. Yes. Uh, one of the things that the economics professor did is said, I'm going to give First of all, he read Make a Stick and he chatted about it with the students and they said the students brought in. One of the things he did is he said, I'm going to give you five exams and I'm going to grade the exams because you need to know how you did, but I'm not recording it. So there's no stakes, but it's going to tell us here's what we know and here's where we need to spend some more time working. That's hugely different from the notion mm -hmm. of a quiz where I'm going to screw up, right? This is yep. an opportunity. Uh, so teaching how learning works and then modeling it in the classroom and reflecting on what worked, I think, helps students bring into their, their own mindset uh, how to go forward and be successful. Cool. There's so much knowledge in the book, and I hate to just bring everything down to just one sentence. But if I had to, it would be the quote that we said earlier. Learning happens when you work to get knowledge out of the brain versus in the brain. I mean, if that doesn't just kind of encompass everything that we've talked about, some powerful words, would you agree? Yeah, that is it. It, it really is it. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Any closing thoughts that you guys want to add or anything we missed? No, it's just I, one of the great things I think about, there's a lot of things about the modern world of technology that trouble me, but one of the great things is podcasts like this where people have an opportunity to have a conversation. A friend of mine uh, who has a thought for the day, if you don't get him, you get his thought. One of them was speeches are judged, conversations are remembered. And this kind of an opportunity to me is very powerful. And I, I, I'm delighted to be a part of this with you. Thank you, DJ. Yeah, yeah thanks for doing this, DJ. Yeah, yeah this, this is great. Yeah, absolutely. So make it stick. Obviously, we can get it anywhere online. Is there uh, anything else you guys would like to point my listeners to? Anything you guys are working on that you'd want to um, talk about? We're getting a huge amount of information from people who are applying these strategies. And our, our hope at the moment is to come up with a follow-up book where we have many examples of how these have been applied and, and cool. what tips they would have for you if you're reading this book about how to do this as an instructor or a learner. And they range from, from military people to uh, middle school people and everything in between. So that's where we are. I think the science is very solid. How we apply it in our own lives is something we're all learning about. Awesome. I look forward to seeing the sequel. That'd be awesome. Well, thank you guys for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, for those of you listening, if you enjoyed the show, make sure to go purchase Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. We just scratched the surface. There's so many examples. It's uh, you know over 200 pages. So there's a lot more in it that we didn't get to. Uh, you guys will love the book. I certainly did as well. And we'll see you guys next week for another episode on the MyFit Podcast. Take care. Have a great week. 